A warm welcome to the Creative Places and Faces podcast, the podcast that explores places that help to inspire creativity. Some are local, some even formative, and others are far away and sometimes rather exotic. I'm Mike Payne, one of the Creative Places and Faces team. Let me introduce you to your host, Jackie DeBurka. Jackie is originally from Dublin, Ireland, but has spent a lot of time abroad, especially in Spain. She is the author of Salvador Dali at Home, creator of Travel Inspires, and the number one travel and tourism influencer, Q2 2020, according to Global Data. Over to you, Jackie. Today's guest, Helen Sharkey, is a visual artist, independent sociocultural academic researcher, and arts manager whose current research is focused on pop-up arts programs centered in non-traditional public spaces. Helen's art is deeply inspired by Strangford Lock, an incredibly beautiful place in Northern Ireland. In fact, the Telegraph newspaper included it in Britain's best lakes, but I dare say Helen will say a lot more about Strangford Lock. Thank you so much for joining us today, Helen. Many of our listeners won't have had the good fortune to visit Strangford Lock so far, would you be able to describe it to them, please, Helen? Sure. Um, Strangford Locks, the northeast coast of Northern Ireland. Uh, it's about 14 miles outside of Belfast. Uh, the lock is a saltwater lagoon. It's tidal twice a day. It's roughly about 16 miles long by three and a half to four miles wide, and it's enclosed by the Ards Peninsula. Um, it's like a giant salt bath, basically the only point of entry and exit of the lock into the Irish Sea is at a place called the Narrows. Um, these have historically fast tidal currents, cross currents that form a narrow corridor between the villages of Portaferry and the village of Strangford. Um, but there's been a daily ferry crossing here for over 400 years with weather permitting um, the area is an area of outstanding natural beauty. It's on a lot of conservation watch lists, and it's been a draw for locals and visitors for centers for centuries, uh, from mm -hmm. St. Patrick's disciples and the Vikings through to uh, local people taking staycations now after the lockdown. So it's always mm -hmm. busy. It's an amazingly beautiful place. Okay, it sounds fantastic. And obviously, I've been looking at the beautiful art that you have created, uh, inspired by the place itself. You're currently living on Mahi Island. How, how long have you actually lived there, Helen? Um, I've lived on a few different islands in Strangford Lock. Currently, I'm on Mahi about four years. Um, mm -hmm. It's part of four islands that are connected to each other by causeways, Rowley, Cross, Ray and Mahi. And it's one of 70 small islands dotted along the coast of the loch. Um, mm -hmm. I'm beside a, a monastic site called Nendrum, which is 5th century. And I'm about four metres from the water up a slight hill on the hill of Nendrum. So it's it's an amazing place. Like I said, uh, Strangford Loch's version of the Florida Keys without the hot weather tourists. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it sounds amazing. How is it to wake up there? I mean, how do you feel? I know the weather obviously is not, you know, continental weather, but on a really nice day where you can see everything very clearly, how does it feel to wake up there, Helen? Um, well, I love it here. I mean, the weather doesn't bother me. This place, when it gets really grey and windy and the rain is howling, 
it's still gorgeous. I mean, to me, uh, the, the weather changes, the colors, the atmosphere. I'm mesmerized by it. It just, uh, awakens all your senses. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. on a slight hill, so I don't really get, uh, affected too much by the high spring tides, the, the winter tides between January and March when they're very sporadic and they can basically happen quickly. And yeah, that doesn't really bother me. The, the lock itself, I always find is more interesting at night. There's um, no light pollution here because the nearest village across the water is about six and a half miles away. So the, the full moon, it creates these amazing, I guess, polarized shadows. It sort of creates an mm-hmm. alternative or an altered color palette that it transforms the familiar land and the seascapes into a distortion of color and shapes. And only larger or macro features are made visible and it simplifies the outlines of the familiar landscape. I am, I use a lot of this in my work. Uh, mm-hmm. now it happens to be the sea here, but when I lived in urban environments, the same thing happened, uh, albeit with man-made structures or, um, vegetation nearby. So yeah, nighttime for me always does it, especially with the bigger full moons over the last few years. I, I kind of became obsessed about the way the landscape transforms itself into this other world. It, it really catches mm-hmm. my imagination. Yeah, I can, I, I saw that. I remember noticing that in, in definitely a couple of pieces of, of, uh, your studies. And you mentioned urban environments. So I was going to ask, have you always lived in Strangford Lock, but you've mentioned urban environments. Have you lived in other places, Helen, or only around oh, that yeah. area? <laughs> well, I was born in <laughs> Belfast. I lived there, uh, until I moved to the U.S. in the early eighties. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, child of the seventies and basically it was pretty traumatic in Belfast back then. So on Sundays, my dad and mum would, uh, bring the family out to the Strangford Lock area to Cloughy Beach on the Irish Sea mm-hmm. aspect of the Ards Peninsula. And I think that's where I was mesmerized by the different type of environment from a very fearful urban, um, mm, traumatized highly political situation into this magical safe place. So it was a real comparison that stayed with me. Um, even when I left Northern Ireland, uh, I would come back quite often to visit and uh, Strangford Lock was always one of those places. Mm, yeah, I, I'm actually getting shivers when you say that. So what, what you, what's your date of birth, Helen, just to get for oh, I'm the audience? I'm really old. I'm, uh, <laughs> like me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm a child of the late fifties. Okay. Okay. So you would have been in your late fifties. So you would have been in your teens, obviously in the seventies, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's just to get a perspective was... for the audience who are listening and going to read about the period, obviously, that you were growing up in Belfast, what age you were. Um, yeah. It's just it, for that it reason. It was, um, well, it's like anything. If, if you're surrounded by something long enough, it becomes normal. Uh, even mm-hmm. though it was often dangerous, it was normal. So until I actually left, I never could compare and see what an alternative way of living was, I suppose. Um, I mean, back in the, those times, or the troubles, as they called them, as mm-hmm. a kid, I just immersed myself in visual arts and crafts. I was drawn to that when I was in primary school. And 
I guess when I was about nine, I decided I wanted to become an artist and I sort of self-taught myself through craft magazines and art books. And I learned by trial mm-hmm. and error. Um, I remember my mum used to yell at me because I would practice drawing my shading on the wallpaper in the bedroom. Uh, well, it was horrible <laughs> wallpaper anyway. And I remember when I left in the early 80s, I took a photograph of the wallpaper just as a memento because I knew as soon as I left the country, everything would disappear and something bland in the shades of grey would appear um, because mm-hmm. that was, you know, what they did back then. But, uh, yeah, um I used art to create my own world, I guess. I felt safe mm-hmm. there. Uh, it fascinated me. And, um, yeah, Belfast 1970s, it kind of had its own form of lockdown. Uh, if you were going out, you were always taking a chance. It didn't matter what age you were. Once mm-hmm. you walked outside your front door down a street, um, as happened to me, you could be blown up, beaten, shot, anything, walking past a car where a bomb could go off a minute after you walked past it. That happened. Friends, parents being shot outside school gates, that happened. Molotov cocktail bombs, arson attacks on your parents' businesses and local shops and churches. Um, Anything was a target for one or other of the two main paramilitary groups at war Mm -hmm. with each other at that period. So you could say, um, as a child, seeing bombs and riots, which seemed endless, going on Sundays to rural beaches around the peninsula in Strangford Lock was sheer bliss. And even today, the smell in high summer of seaweed cooking when the tide's out, it just is bliss. It was one of those things I really, I guess my obsession for the micro came out of that because I started looking at plants. I was looking at biology slides, seeing the nature's patterns within cross sections of plants. And then Mm -hmm. this transferred into the idea of cross sections of life and archaeology and human strata and symbolism and visual arts and mm-hmm. I lived for a while in Sumbra and Shetland Islands I always had a thing about islands but it's between North Scotland and Norway and I lived near Jarlshof and that was a multi-period archaeology site and I just became definitely obsessed about archaeology and strata and the idea of hidden layers underneath the surface below the present day. That sort of became my calling card. And then when I moved mm-hmm. into an area with water, that added its own layer of uh, a sort of ethereal quality that came out in the photo art graphics uh, that I started doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So all of that obviously gives uh, a good lead up and a background to what's obviously integral to your art. Can you describe your art to our audience, Helen? Uh, Depends on the decade. Uh, Mixed media, uh, a lot of the time, which means whatever I fancy doing at the time, that works best Mm -hmm. with the theme I'm interested in. Um, I do a lot of bronze casting. Um, I did a, a, what would you call it, an apprenticeship in Johnson Atelier in Princeton in New Jersey after I did my master's in Baltimore. And I learned how to sand cast in lost wax and bronze and aluminium. And um, I basically spend an average two months a year intensely casting after about six or nine months of making the the master templates and plaster wood. And I would Mm -hmm. sell these either unique or small editions at my business, along with 
the the photo art graphics and the textile tapestries and drawings and anything else that I've made at the time. And that's how I make my living nowadays. Uh, I don't teach okay. anymore. Okay. And one quick question that comes to mind just when you've mentioned uh, the, 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 that work. Those two months or so, are do they fall into any particular season? Do you see that like repeating year over year or, or does it just depend on the year when you might be doing that? Uh I have a lot of commitments. Um, I have a signed contract with St. George's Market where I have to be there three days a week, mm-hmm. 48 weeks of the year. The rest of the time I would do workshops and other things. So I do it in between other work commitments and art projects that I'm in. I'm usually doing three or four or more things at once and they overlap. <laughs> and whenever there's a, an opportunity, uh, like the lockdown, I got a ton of stuff done. It was brilliant. I mean, it was sad, but brilliant. Um, very creative period for me. You're you're so, not yeah. the only artist, artistic person that I've, I've been talking to recently who said exactly pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. So I was just curious about, obviously, OK, you're fitting that in around around your various commitments. How did the Strangford Lock Gallery that you've created, how did that come into being, Helen? Uh, let's see. Um, well, when I came back to Northern Ireland, uh, European funding was centred around um, socio-cultural projects. And so I slotted into that because that's the way my work goes. And I did a lot of community arts projects with different communities of interest and different people of, with different abilities. And I would do a lot of art commissions. And when that dried up um, after the 2008 financial crash, uh, I started, well, I took advantage of a, what would you call it, an arts residence in a National Trust property at the bottom of Strangford Lock called Castle Ward. And Uh after about two years as a self-employed artist, I got a couple of tax rebates, not the world's hugest amount. I think it was 700 and 1200. And I basically combined those amounts, uh, after I bought a new motor for the small boat and basically started Strangford Lock Gallery. And, uh, that's kind of the start of it. Uh, my arts residence in Castle Ward. Uh, gave me this huge free studio. I mean, it was freezing. It was a medieval clock tower in the farm. Uh, it became famous because it was renamed by the Game of Thrones people as Winterfell Castle, but it was basically mm-hmm. a medieval square building and I was in the basement and I would get a lot of visitors and I would keep on doing what I was doing, making molds or painting or whatever and talk to them and they'd talk to me. And that's how the whole demonstration and the idea of exhibiting more to the public and interacting with them came about. So Mm -hmm. basically by 2013 and the tax rebates, I was, I suppose, simultaneously working at Castle Ward. And after about a three and a half year wait, I'd gotten into St. George's Market. Um, It's a very old market. Uh, It's about, let's see, markets came to being in 1645 in Belfast when it became a city. And it had various formats, but in the middle 19th century, it was built and it's like a giant glass house that happens to be a market. And I was really pleased to get into there because it's the largest creative cluster, I would say, north or south of Ireland of artists and craftspeople within a okay. non-traditional environment because it is a market, but it's huge. 
And mm-hmm. um, I mean, you get bored. So I started doing demonstrations and talking to people and explaining what I was doing and maybe getting them to do it. So it kind of came about naturally. It evolved itself, maybe. Uh-huh. So how would one of those and, uh, demonstrations pan out? Helen? What would you or does it depend on your mood on the day? Can you describe no, one of those demonstrations? No, I, I try to keep them pretty. Well, I mean, the media, the, the mediums, the materials or the processes might change. But I would usually have something already determined in my mind that I was going to do. Maybe it was a commission I had to finish or something. Um, I might be doing a lino print or I might be doing painting or I might be doing needle felting for the tapestries. Uh, I work Mm -hmm. a lot from photos for people that want specific places done in this technique that I use. It would be representational, Mm -hmm. so quite realistic. And I would just start, put the materials down, little small table and chair. So that way, uh, a lot of kids would see what I'm doing because I learned early on if the, if the kids are interested, then the parents are more inclined to, you know, let them watch. And I figure if I can influence the kids, then maybe later on more people will make stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it just escalated. And, uh, it's something I do every day while I'm there. Uh, sometimes I'll do it for seven hours straight in between selling stuff to people. Other days, I might only do 15 minutes at a time, take a break, do other stuff, come back. I mean, it's not set in stone, so it, it's reactive to the conditions of the day and what time's available to me. Mm-hmm. And would you have people coming back then, Helen, you know, local people that they've been involved or they've enjoyed one of your demonstrations? Do you feel that there's a sense of community built up around these demonstrations? Oh, yeah. Um I mean, it depends on them. Sometimes I would just give stuff to them free once they've tried it and say, give that a go. Look on YouTube, go for some of the free dry felt videos uh, mm-hmm. and give it a go. Other times, well, more recently over the last few years, I started making kits. Um, I make them very cheap. So I would say, look, try this. Uh, but that's only if they were saying, do you have, you know, do you teach? Can I attend workshops? And I'd say, well, there's this or whatever. So yes, mm-hmm. there's an aspect of making money out of it, but there's also enabling them by making it cheap enough where they can then start. Um, so yeah, I would sell entire kits or just the materials. It, it's whatever they want. And I mean, Belfast, St. George's Market, it's been voted I guess the UK's best large indoor market 2019. Well, it's been voted at many times, but there's about 214 businesses. About 30% of them are arts and crafts, maybe more now. And, um, there's a really good art vibe there. It's, it's, um, educational, informal. It's, yeah, it's kind of like informal education, that whole process of people learning, but it doesn't feel like learning. It's Mm -hmm. uh, not a chore. It's entertaining because they can watch, they can interact. If they want to give it a go, I'll show them uh, as long as they're over 12 year old and sign a disclaimer form, of course. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you have to do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it's it's basically kind of a a spontaneous artistic experience uh, for, for those people who get involved, I suppose. Yeah, uh, I mean, I do do them in other places. I, I would do a lot of fairs. Um, 
I've been invited to Glastonbury as a as a craftsperson in the green fields, doing the the workshops and things, and interacting mm-hmm. with people. I would do a lot of art trade fairs, although of course not this year. Um, no. I've done a lot of other markets, uh, anything like that that. I feel there is an interaction and participation aspect to it and that it is accessible to anybody. I mean, even with the surge of immigrants recently over the last few years, they don't speak English. Somehow we still mm-hmm. manage to have a conversation and, um, you know, I, I get them to try things and I explain things. And a lot of the kits I have are huge amounts of color photos so they can actually see without the use of text or language how to do something. Um, plus mm-hmm. YouTube or anything else. So it's a combination of all of those. Uh, it gets people thinking about making stuff and realizing that it has other benefits. Um, it chills their mind out, stops them worrying a bit, gives them some free space in their head. All of this type of thing. Arts therapy mm. of sorts. Yeah, I was just going to agree. <laughs> I was just going to use the word therapeutic. So that leads on quite nicely to a question I have for you, Hannah, which is, do you feel that art uh, and any other form of creativity has the potential to be healing and maybe even help promote promote peace? Wow, that's a huge subject. And the answer is yes. I know. Um, basically, let me see. For me, um, I'm not qualified as an arts therapist. Uh, but I have noticed community arts, one of its aspects of social gains is uh, renewed self-confidence, feeling of mm-hmm. hope for the future because they've learned new skills and they realize they are able to learn uh, possibility of making money, increasing social capital within deprived areas. Uh, all of that happened over Northern Ireland over started in 81 when the EU started giving agricultural grants out and then housing grants and then they became more inclined towards um, socio-cultural projects, women's projects, others' Mm -hmm. projects. I got involved in that when I came back in the late 90s and I saw firsthand how things changed, the creation of community centres, art centres, uh, being run by the local councils rather than governments somewhere else. Uh, Northern Ireland is like a real-time case study of how it works. It's mm-hmm. my PhD work. I did a hundred years of this in various um, fields and sectors, traditional, educational, non-traditional, informal education. And I could go on forever. It's basically another conversation. And <laughs> if you start me, I will not be able to stop. And maybe we will do it some other day. So I, I like the fact that you've, you've given me the opportunity. <laughs> it is a subject that I find fascinating. And actually throughout the series of, of interviews that you're one of the early interviews, Helen, I am actually asking uh, other, you know, writers and artists, uh, just to drop a couple of names who've already been interviewed, Henry McDonald and uh, Malachi O'Doherty about this subject that, um, obviously you're, in a great position to perhaps, yeah, to do a, a separate, a separate chat. Well, the whole community arts and to a certain degree, informal self-help sector. Uh, I mean, your guy, Francois Matarasso, Florida, Howard Gardner, Freer, Ikeda, Goldberg, De Bono, Owen Kelly, all these people have influenced visual and other artists 
Um, I mean, mm-hmm. my interests in the past have been in multi-arts. I'm, I'm not just interested in the visual arts because not everybody wants to make stuff. People want to make music or sing or dance mm-hmm. or move or talk. And I, I followed the tracks of how that changed specifically in Northern Ireland and the UK. Um, mm-hmm. Not so much the Republic of Ireland because uh, Northern Ireland was quite unique. Um, mm. from when it was set up in 21, 22, well, the 20th century through to now, it's like, um, it, it's the joke about Northern Ireland is that it's a perfect place for small case studies. I mean, food companies experiment in this all the time. You know, have you ever tried a champagne flavored crunchy? Well, you will if you lived <laughs> in Northern Ireland. You know, we're, we're this perfect environment for experimenting on because we're so compact and our population is teeny. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I can see that you're, you're just to divert slightly while we're still talking about the environment of the St. George's market. Um, you are more involved there also, Helen, than purely, you know, having your space for the, for the gallery, uh, obviously over the, over the weekend days. What what are you doing uh, in terms of the market there, apart from the gallery? Um, well, once I got accepted into it as a casual, I worked my way up to what they call a permanent trader, and that's where you're given a contract and your space is secure. Uh, that's annually renewed. Um, basically, well, some context first, I think. As a kid, my parents' businesses were bombed and arsoned and they went bankrupt. And so we moved around a lot. And my dad used to sell ceramics and furniture he'd buy mm-hmm. from Manchester at the various markets. And I mean, the joke in our family was we could tell what day it was by the town market we were in because each town would have a market in different days. And this would be maybe mm-hmm. in the weekends or in the summer. And I've always had this close bond for market communities. They're real grassroots types of people and businesses and they're the ones that then go on and develop their businesses but markets are like micro breeding grounds for business and for um well i'm going off the point but anyway uh when i got into st george's market um the building it's owned by the belfast city council so we pay rent to them and after a few years i could sort of see there was a bit of a malaise a bit of a problem there was no interaction between the council markets unit and um, the traders, all 214 mm. of them and their businesses, etc. So I decided to apply to go on to the subcommittee. That's an annually elected thing mm-hmm. with all the traders electing you. And then I decided to go on to the, apply for the main board as a what's called NMTF, National Market Traders Federation of the UK Limited Representative for the Belfast branch. And, of course, all of this is voluntary. Don't get diddly for it. Um, but <laughs> I wanted to represent them and lobby for them because, as you can tell, I'm a bit of a talker and it's not an issue for me. Dialoguing slash debating slash arguing slash <laughs> negotiating with councillor types, um, I have no fear of them. Um, you know, so I just get on with it and do my best with the other board members to represent these businesses um, mm-hmm. in a fair way and that they don't get disadvantaged because they're micro or self-employed people. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, with the lockdown, uh, we were closed for 
well, 16 weeks, I guess. And um, most of the traders didn't get any kind of, or didn't, what would you say? Um, they didn't get any of the grants that were available to that sector for various reasons. So the committee, mm -hmm. once we were allowed to start meeting virtually or socially distancing, uh, we met with the unit committee of the market and we negotiated over two months to get the market open because the council weren't going to open it. They thought maybe October, oh, November or maybe next year. So anyway, we got that down to early July, but then we knew out of the 214 stalls, maybe only a third of them would be allowed in because socially distancing within an indoor space requires a lot of room. So we've about mm. a third of the traders there and we have only so many people allowed in the building at once and we have our one-way systems and mm. it works well. We don't have the live music anymore because nobody's allowed to sing because it might contaminate the place. Oh, and uh, yeah. there's other things, restricted hours, etc. So we lobbied for a rent holiday, a rent waiver, mm -hmm. and they refused us twice. And then we decided um, We'd go online, we'd go on the radio, TV, papers, old school lobbying and basically put our point out to the public. We were on TV a bunch. And the third time, lucky, we got what we call speaker's privilege at uh, mm -hmm. Belfast City Council Strategic Policy Committee, uh, which was viral. And we were unanim unanimously approved by all the councillors, which was really mm -hmm. nice doesn't happen a lot in Belfast and the traders have been granted now three months rent holiday commencing September 4th uh, as long as we don't go into lockdown. <laughs> okay that's another that's another interview and another subject isn't it Helen? Oh, yeah let's let's not do that today. Yeah. No that's not today. I, I'd love to go back to your own work because of course yeah you, it's it's obvious that you have a lot of fire, if you like, if you don't mind me using that expression for a variety like of areas. I think obsession, life. really, but that's fine. <laughs> obsession is good as well. OK, <laughs> you're suitably obsessed with many very important issues. That's that's what comes across, at least going back to oh, your yeah. actual the, the actual uh, different media that you're working with artistically on the gallery website that we're going to publish underneath the, the, the podcast uh, when we go live with that. So people who oh, obviously thank have you. Of course, I'm d delighted to do it. Um, people will be able to have a look in their own time after they've listened or while they're listening. Um, I was drawn towards the landscape collection, Helen, purely because, of course, one of the main themes of, of our chat today is how the landscape has inf influenced you. Uh, that's mm -hmm. series number series number two there on your website. And one of the ones that uh, really sort of struck me in, and it struck me on many levels, kind of in a spiritual way, in a, an artistic sort of visual way, on, in a way on the heart chakra and everything, uh, is study number three, which is called the fallen fallen tree. Um, mm -hmm. That for that for me has an otherworldly feeling about it. Do you remember how you were particularly inspired when you were creating this one? Yeah, the that was done at the time I was living on Ray Island, which is the island linked to Mahi, and I was working at Castle Ward. Um, mm -hmm. Being in the so-called Winterfell Castle, there was a lot of tourists and uh, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to sell them stuff? So I had to be very careful that it was medieval gothic slash slightly linked to GOT, but obviously not plagiarizing it because those guys are uh -huh. pretty serious about that stuff. 
wouldn't yeah. couldn't blame them. Anyway, um, that particular one, uh, series two, study three, fallen tree, and series two, study number five, mythical path. Those two came out of a need to make money and also to try and reflect the atmosphere of GOT. And also, it's what I was surrounded by. And I was doing a lot of color popping on black and white uh, graphics mm-hmm. at the time, like hand tinting, kind of mm-hmm. like nerd art, as my husband calls it. And, <laughs> um, hey, it's popular. I can't, mm-hmm. those things have been, it doesn't matter what age, whether you're like a goth or a, a an OAP, they all seem to love them. Um, that particular area is a forested area. It's, I guess, used by the locals for barbecues. And mm-hmm. there's this massive spruce tree. It's growing horizontally, not vertically, into Strangford Lock. Half of its roots are still in the ground. The other half, they're kind of, what would you say, rounded off by the wind erosion. And mm-hmm. after a high tide, it's magical. The, the branches near the lower end of the tree by the water are covered in seaweed and it looks like they're hanging Christmas tree decorations. And I just love that eroded, exposed coastline because it reminds me of the archaeological human strata themes that I like. And uh, mm-hmm. I guess I was into full GOT mode of arts production back then, that mm-hmm. and the mythical path one. Um, but they're from the same area, the forested area on the east coast of Ray Island in Strangford Lock. Okay. Uh, you'd actually almost look, looking at it as, a, as I am, as we're chatting, obviously, each in our own, uh, each in our own environment. You'd almost expect there's such a sense of fantasy about it that you'd almost expect, you know, uh, either fairies or something to appear there at the same time as the, as what you have there in the land. <laughs> okay. Maybe dragons also. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was my on. attempt to, um, to work within the environment I find myself in while still trying staying true to myself. And the influences came from where I lived on Ray Island at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And out of this, this landscape, uh, collection that you have in series two, you've mentioned number five obviously is connected with, with, uh, number three. Are there a few of those? I, I said three, but it doesn't matter. There might be two, might be four. Are there some of those that, really uh, describe your own connection to the area better than the rest of them? Well, because it's photo art graphics photography that's been altered, um, Series 2, Study 12, The Snow Shadows, that's again when I was in Ray Island and about, it It just reminds me of a moment in time. There was about a metre of snow fell overnight. It was one of those few times snow stayed in Northern Ireland and it mm-hmm. cut everybody off for several weeks. Mm-hmm. And the silence that engulfed the island, it was like time standing still. And even ironically, the salt water around the coast was frozen. The waves of the water was frozen up to two meters out into the lock. And it felt wow. otherworldly. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a lot of fun, the snow as well. And we eventually did get out when we persuaded a local farmer to um, use one of his many JCB toys and clear the roads. But mm. yeah, it it was amazing that that I remember. Um, there's a lot of there's one called Nuts and Love series two number seven. It's uh, I was at a Halloween party and I split a walnut and inside it was weird the nut split but both sides were heart shaped. And it was a bit of serendipity. It was kind of direct 
uh, influence from nature. Uh, I started making a little mini still life. I, I made a heart out of yellow wax and I balanced mm-hmm. um, the nutshells on top of it and photographed it using um, artificial light to cast a heavy shadow that happened to be heart shaped mm-hmm. because of the way the nuts were sitting together in two halves. So it was like serendipity having fun. It was, it was one of those crazy moments and it was very on a small scale, but it, it sort of encompassed the whole idea of being directly influenced by nature in a very tangible way. Luckily, this is not a party political broadcast. It is a short announcement to mention our sponsor. This episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast is sponsored by Property Insurance Center. Property Insurance Center's sponsorship helps to support the local economy by promoting not only local writers, artists, and craftspeople, but also entities involved in travel, tourism, and hospitality. This first series of the Creative Places and Faces podcast has an exciting lineup of guests, including Jan Carson, Henry McDonald, Ann Smith, Malachi O'Doherty, Andrea Spencer, Helen Sharkey, Emma Thorpe, and many others. Today's sponsor, Property Insurance Center, specializes in commercial and residential property insurance and all types of business insurance. Originally established in 1976, this family insurance brokerage has served thousands of businesses and families just like you over the decades. To discover more or become a sponsor, click on the sponsorship link below this podcast. And now back to you, Jackie. If you were to compare your own identity as much as you would like to reveal, obviously, in this conversation with the landscape that embraces you, what similarities would you see, Helen? I think the one that affects me uh, on so many levels, it's um, Series 3, Study 4, uh, what's that one? Sunrise over Strangford Lock. It's like these pink and purples. And it's before the sun comes up. It's that half light time. It was taken about 5 a.m. and a summer morning on Ringneal Key on Ray Island. And it was looking towards the Ards Peninsula opposite uh, Ringneal mm-hmm. and uh, Ray Island or in the land side of the lock. And then opposite it is the peninsula side. And uh, it was like one of those really fine, dry, misty mornings because uh, the atmosphere, the the moisture from the water was burning off as the sun was coming up. And it was like nature's painting. Uh, now, it only lasted a few minutes. It evaporated when the sun got brighter. But it was a very ethereal moment. Mm-hmm. And it was a very deep experience. It it was very powerful. And you get a lot of that when Strangford Lock. It's, it's like, it's amazing. Yeah, so I would say that one. Okay, I mean, I can see that again, just looking at, at a computer screen, you can see with some, some of the work exactly what you've just said. Um, water, obviously, that you're surrounded with there is a very creative force for, for many people. Do you feel, Helen, that your creative output would be different if you weren't able to live close to the water as you do? Not really. Uh, I mean, I have been consciously making art since what, eight or nine. And I've only lived near water relatively recently. Um, I mean, uh, Belfast, Baltimore, D.C., New Jersey, California, all those places that I lived and worked in the U.S. for a couple of decades, they were influenced by archaeological themes. Um, Mm -hmm. It 
when I used to visit home, I think in the early 90s, uh, it was the end of the summer and the water was pretty good. I was down in County Clare and I nipped over to Valencia to go on to Skellig Michael Island off the mm-hmm. Galway coast. And I'd been itching to get on there for years because the the stones and the, there was something there I just had a connection with. So when I got there, I had the same feeling I now do about Strangford Lock. It was identical. It was very strange. Uh, and I wanted to live there. But of course, the uh, what are they called? Um, the Department of whatever it is in Ireland that looks after um, monuments, they wouldn't let anybody live there. So I decided to move up here instead. But it was gorgeous. That, that whole, I mean, if you didn't break your neck climbing up, those very steep stairs and you don't have vertigo you're rewarded by the view of the beehive huts as seen recently in uh the movie what do you call it the sci-fi thing uh, anyway it'll I'm come not, to me I'm, yeah i'm not sure yeah. i'm not sure um, anyway that that's the place that the hair in the back of my neck went up uh there's a kind of cross slab that looks slightly figurative and it's overlooking the view of Skellig Michael to the bird island behind it uh, with the beehive huts and uh, Star Wars. That was the new remake oh, okay. they did there. Yeah, they mm-hmm. took over the place. Anyway, to get back to the point, that was the place that gives me the same atmosphere. And it was another island. So there's obviously something about islands. If I didn't live here, I would visit. It doesn't really matter. I'm lucky to live here. But if I couldn't, I would just visit. I mean, my work. Now that it's taken this additional aspect uh, that the water gives, I don't think it's going to disappear because I did or didn't live here. It would stay. It's too much mm-hmm. ingrained in me now, I think. So in a sense, by being there, how many years did, did you say you were in that area exactly? Let's see, 2020, uh, it's, that would be 13 Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you but feel- I've lived in the area, but not by the water prior to that. So yeah, I mean, I've known of it forever, and I know the area well. Yeah, so in a way, one of the one of the words that comes to mind: Would you feel you've merged, you know, enough sufficiently with that landscape that you would take it with you, basically, if you had to go somewhere else? Yeah. Also. I have a huge archive and catalogue of images I've taken over the years. Uh, I'm one of these people that has like 24,000 photos on my phone in the <laughs> iCloud, that type of thing. Plus, mm-hmm. I have a lot of external hard drives uh, that I always keep as a sort of backup and all that stuff. I mean, all I have to do is spend an afternoon going through that and I have enough work for like the next six months. So, no, mm-hmm. I'm not going to leave it anytime soon and it'll always be with me. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you could say I've merged with it. Um, yeah. And how how about the other environment that you spend three days a week in uh, being Belfast, being your home city? Um, is is that an environment that, that has sort of a similar weight for you, but in a different way? How would you compare the two? I would say Strangford Lock for me is for me. And then being in the market, obviously, I make a living from it. A lot mm-hmm. of visitors, um, I make a lot of connections there. People order commissions. But I also feel like I'm paying back and I'm contributing maybe to the next generation by 
showing them how things are made in a very simplistic way. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like um, I'm enjoying myself, but I'm also contributing and paying back. So it's a mm-hmm. it's a kind of give and take thing. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, just for those people who haven't been to Belfast, if you had a friend coming from somewhere else, uh, so somebody you knew in the States, for example, where would be the favorite place in Belfast that you would have that friend stay, be it a hotel, a B&B? Would you have a particular favorite? Oh, classic, the Europa, <laughs> the most <laughs> bombed hotel in the world. Until the peace agreement of 1998, of course, more or less. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the oddest hotel, but it is central and the people there are fabulous. I would say the Europa Hotel. Mm-hmm. The B&Bs okay, and the guest houses in Belfast are amazing too. But that, if they wanted uh, to remember something, Belfast, the view from the hotel is a 360 and top floor is definitely uh, one of those places I would recommend. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Um, and if you're taking a bit of time out from, from your obviously very busy schedule, uh, where would you be bringing this friend? Mainstream sites, quirky sites? What? Where, where where would be the must-sees? Well, they'll be bombarded with imagery, uh, industrial heritage, uh, shipbuilding, arts, etc. I personally would say if you want to meet what the locals call the jewel in the crown of, of Northern Ireland, I would say St. George's Market. I'd mm-hmm. say Crumlin Road Jail, Linen Hall Library. It's amazing. Go up to the third floor. Uh Climb Cave Hill, have a look at the view of the city. Uh, mm-hmm. Belfast is a horseshoe shaped of mountains wrapped around a, a kind of valley or a basically what was a swamp that had been drained. The zoo's pretty cool. And the Ulster Museum has a very eclectic collection, especially a lot of local arts. And I know as a school kid, I was, I practically lived there. That in the library was either art or books. That was my two things. Mm-hmm. Okay. That sounds great. And what about the special night out? They've just arrived or it's a Saturday night. You you want to dress up and bring your friend out to somewhere that's like a treat restaurant. Where would that be? Uh, Dean's, Queen's University Mm -hmm. or the one in Howard Street and other Dean's. That's really nice. Um, Probably there. I mean, there are a lot of brilliant places. Um, The new Cathedral Quarters has a lot of very, very good restaurants. Uh, But I think... The university area is quirky and they might like that more. Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you have any kind of like when you're, when you're going off for lunch, uh, in the market, when you're working, do you pop up, pop around the corner to somewhere casual or do you go somewhere within the market or where would be a casual place that you would recommend? Well, there's a bunch. There's a, I mean, the Observer newspaper voted St. George's market the best food experience in the UK. Mm-hmm. But if I wasn't in the market, I would go to, I like John Long's Fish and Chips, been around forever. Uh, it's uh, where Howard Street crosses over Great Victoria Street into Grosvenor Road. And um, opposite uh, the hotels and the opera house, that's really nice. The food's fantastic. And it's like the 1960s uh, booths. It's really, really, I guess, as authentic as you could get that mm-hmm. survived the 70s, 80s and 90s in Northern Ireland. Yeah, 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 yeah. And obviously, presumably, are quite, is quite good now, quite well set up for what we're dealing with in the 
in the days of, of uh, COVID-19 as well. Yeah, because of the booths and the way it's laid mm. out. I mean, it's always been bijou and tiny, but the booths and the high uh, chair backs, you know, they're, you've got about five foot of wood ahead of you uh, and partitions, and that's always been there. So it makes naturally uh, well or well partitioned uh, eating area. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if I don't know whether you head straight straight out to Strangford Lock at the end of a day in the market or or the odd day would you stay for a drink with some of your, your colleagues, where would be the favourite bar to go to? Uh, anywhere behind Ulster University's Art College. There's the John Hewitt Bar, uh, Duke of York, any of those. Um, they're nice. Um, if I'm outside of Belfast in the Strangford Lock area, Food or drinks has to be a place called Daft Daddy's. It's on Skettrick Island, another island, mm -hmm. and it's fantastic. It's called Daft Daddy's because if the tide's high enough, you're not going to get on or off it, which is always good for business. Okay. <laughs> what kind of, oh, it's a great name. What kind of food did they serve there, Helen? Uh, fresh seafood from Strangford Lock. Really good ciders. Um, they've recently developed their outside eating area big glass fronts, uh, even in winter when that wind howls over the lock, those two inch thick glass partitions protect you. And it's brilliant. It's, uh, it's up there. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but it is amazing. Daft Eddie's. Okay. That's brilliant to know. Okay. Listen, Helen, thank you so much for, for being with us this afternoon. And, um, no I'm worries. going to, as I said before, going to point, put your website under the, um, recording here that we have and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again I think we'll, we'll definitely we'll have one or two more chats in the future if it suits you Helen Yeah if you're interested in how Northern Ireland's a real time case study of um, uh, an experiment in expanding heritage of identity simply put then it's the place I mean it's amazing uh, it's kind of another obsession yeah I'm obsessive. What can I say? It's my superpower. <laughs> okay. Thanks again, Helen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast. If you would like to apply to be a guest or a sponsor, be sure to check out the links below the podcast. Until next time, from all of us here, take care, stay safe, and be creative. <laughs>